30 years after Fritz Schumacher wrote his groundbreaking work, Small is Beautiful, which challenged previous assumptions about the relentless pursuit of profit and progress, giant organizations and modern technology, pollution, global warming and the loss of biodiversity continue to spiral out of control. While the Millennium Development Goal of cutting poverty in half by 2015 is looking harder than ever to achieve. For Schumacher, an intermediate technology which put people and the environment first provided another way. But is his message still relevant? Well, I think it's more relevant than it was when he, he first gave it. Um, well, first of all, the gap between the rich and the poor in developing countries is increasing. The rich are getting richer, and the poor, if they're not getting poorer, are standing still. Now that is uh, a disaster for the, for the poor, and a disaster for the developing countries, and probably in the long run a disaster for us as well. We are persisting in our globalization, big-scale technology, uh, eliminating people from the process of production, uh, making people simply pawns of large-scale technology. I think in all these ways we are going in the wrong direction and we need the arguments of Schumacher for greater localization to prevent being ground into the earth by big technology. In Small is Working, we profile examples of how people-centered technology is making a difference to the lives of the poor and addressing their needs by using local resources and in some cases harnessing the positive aspects of globalization. These features reflect the work that intergovernment organizations like UNESCO and NGOs like Intermediate Technology Development Group ITDG, have been doing and also suggest how appropriate technology isn't just a solution for the poor, but has a relevance to all our lives. Old or new, big or small, be it invented in a high-tech lab or in situ, technology should be valued according to its usefulness. Local and global knowledge may have different uses, but these can be complementary. Ultimately, whether poor communities develop or import a new technology, only they can determine what works in the long term. And for this to happen, they need to be involved as decision makers and stakeholders. That's why no appropriate technology that I know of has ever, has ever been appropriate without, first of all, discovering uh, what level of knowledge people have already and building on that not saying all your knowledge is useless because that is a way of destroying people start from where people are starting with farmers was how the Swami Nathan Research Foundation began working to find a way to protect the remaining traditional rice varieties in a region which used to be home to over 1700 strains so you see that we had a huge resource, we have lost out, and once uh, those are extinct, you, you cannot bring them back anymore. It was the promise of high-yield hybrid rice that had led farmers to abandon their indigenous strains. With just seven local types being grown regularly, the first task was to catalogue the remaining varieties. The next, to set up a gene bank to hold samples in one of the village houses. This is uh, what we call the gene bank. 
so that uh, whenever there is a, a crisis of uh, this uh, seed and this uh, variety of seed is not available anymore, this can be used to uh, produce more seeds and it remains with the villagers, they can decide when to grow this variety. For the farmers to continue with the traditional varieties, they needed to be convinced of the economics. What they discovered was that if they used lime planting rather than scatter sowing, the yields would increase dramatically. Using the old way of broadcasting rice, I used to get around 10 bags. But now, using lime planting, I get 22 to 25 bags and also use no chemical fertilizer or pesticides. Traditional rice is now cheaper than the hybrid varieties and the crop is more reliable as the indigenous varieties have developed a built-in tolerance for local soil conditions. Our aim is not just to conserve and you know just have a museum kind of thing. It's not, it's not a live museum. It's, we are not looking at for that. We have to ensure that we don't go back to importing uh, food grains from abroad. And we need to ensure that our people get food in future too. In Kenya, combining local knowledge with new techniques which enhance the Maasai's traditional and intangible cultural heritage has been key when adapting their homes to more permanent structures. Maasai people uh, go settling. Uh, by this I mean they have changed their old ways of moving. That is this nomadic way of life. We are settling down because we can no longer move from place to place so we need to have permanent house structures. A Maasai herself, Sharon is helping the women to work out what kinds of homes they want to live in. Changes must respect Maasai tradition. So the women, who've long been the builders, take part in planning and redesigning their homes. At this workshop, they draw their ideal home. All of them come up with the same floor plan, a code for traditional Maasai family living. The drawings I was doing with them, they were showing me their traditional houses and the improved traditional house as uh, opposed to them drawing the, the, the conventional type of house. None of them even has got an idea. But uh, when it comes to drawing their own traditional house, they can even do the right interior designs. Any improvements or innovations need to find a way of incorporating these designs. If they don't, there's the risk that the changes won't be adopted. It's the roofs that differ most from the traditional nomadic homes. They've been specially designed with guttering and a tank to catch rainwater. This innovation cuts down on the number of hours women spend collecting water. In the traditional improved house, we have larger windows or larger openings whereby air can come in, we have uh, enough light, we have uh, private rooms for the, the owner of the house, we have enough cooking space so that a lot of accidents or house accidents are not found. To me, uh, I would say a traditional improved house is better, simply because I can build. Because the moment you are a Maasai, your mother or your mother-in-law shows you how to build the house. So I think I can do it. One of the questions that, that, that we should be asking, what is it good for people, really would mean, is it within reach of people? 
Can the very poor afford it? Can they understand it? And can they control it? And that's the, the really important part. Can they control this technology to their own advantage? So that they don't have to buy the technology from the rich or bring in people who can understand the technology and they don't. Technology can do more than contribute to national economic growth through job creation. It can also enable greater participation in democracy. While Schumacher put value on meaningful work and attaining dignity in the workplace, what he did not anticipate was how far technology would go in strengthening people's rights. Information and communications technology is a good example of how a high-tech solution can be both appropriate and put control into the hands of the poor. People living in a countryside or in a remote village don't have access uh, to information about health or education, market prices, for example. Until now, the only way for people living in isolated villages in the Peruvian Andes to access information has been on market days. But thanks to new radio stations like Radio Impacto, they are no longer solely dependent on the market for communication. Nor need they worry that they are being cheated of a decent price when they sell their produce. The program we are broadcasting is very important because in this way all the inhabitants of the district of Asuncion can be informed about the prices of the produce to see if they go up or down or stay the same. When they come down to the market they will know what to pay and they won't be overcharged. Until the radio stations came, the only way to contact other villages was to send written messages on the milk truck as it made its daily rounds. 4,000 meters up, Juanica is one of Peru's most isolated villages. We are actually encouraging all of our listeners to come over and participate so that they can come to the studio of Radio Impacto to make their own programs. The station broadcasts local news, music, announcements and love messages four hours a day. Next to the radio station there's now a solar-powered satellite telephone and internet connection. To make a telephone call from here is not more expensive than in any other place in Peru and the cost uh, for one hour of internet connection is uh, roughly one dollar and it's affordable for any people that live here. While in Peru, access to information helped reduce the risk of being exploited by middlemen. In Malaysia, it was access to GPS satellite technology that helped the Cayenne block logging companies who for 20 years have been encroaching on their land and threatening their food supply. <laughs> The impact of logging on the life of the people in the longhouse here is very bad because the intense logging here has destroyed our land and it scares away the wild boar, it makes the river muddy and the fish run away as well. Using the new technology, they began work on a high-resolution map that would clearly show their customary boundaries and secure rights of tenure. The terrain wasn't always easy, but the detail had to be good enough to stand up in court. The positioning detail was entered into a mapping program and printed out. The evidence was so good, the judge used it in preference to the official map and ruled in favour of the Cayenne against the logging companies. 
many other villages now produce mats to defend their land. In Baram here alone, I think almost 100 communities already involved in this mapping. Like in the Penang communities, more than 40 villages. And each of these communities, they have their own map and then tell the company that, okay, on this map, this, this house that you already trespassed. Is this technology good for people? Is it good for the environment? Is it good for the resource base? And if the answer to each of these is no, it is not good, then we don't want this technology. We've got to be able to say no, we don't want it. Current levels of consumption and use of unsustainable technologies are creating chronic and lasting damage to the environment. But there are appropriate technical solutions which also reflect people's economic and social needs. Renewable energy is one of the best globally applicable examples, a challenge for rich and poor alike. More than 50% of people in Sri Lanka haven't got access to the grid electricity and it's over 70% in the rural area. At this test site, a wind turbine is providing enough energy for 22 households. But for long-term success, community ownership is critical and they formed an electricity consumers association to help with planning, construction and operations. We believe that, uh, that if the operation maintenance aspect of it is not done properly, that it, the project is going to be a failure. So we have done technical training so far, we have had no problems with the maintenance. We're very happy to have electricity. Now we can watch TV and do our housework properly. With lamps, we had very little light, and accidents would happen when children fell asleep doing their homework. The lamp would topple over and cause accidents. Now this doesn't happen, and we can save the money we would have spent on kerosene. Television isn't viewed as an antisocial activity. Many women now say that they see their husbands who watch TV after working in the fields rather than going straight to bed. Others say that thanks to television, they now feel less cut off from the rest of the world. It's incredible what they are saying now after getting electricity and uh, I mean some people say that children's education has gone up uh, and that they also feel like that they belong to the society that some people say that they, they are not alone anymore because they have lights. I like it because it means I can study. If wind power is going to take off, local maintenance and manufacture is essential. I think the potential for wind power in everywhere around the world is so high and it's, it's, it's an it's untapped resource where we should be tapping it more and more in time to come rather than using other things like coal or diesel or whatever. I think it's a real renewable energy source. We should be uh, doing two things. One is developing techniques of reusing materials, uh, which we don't really do at the moment. We throw things away. And the other is to develop technologies which are based on renewable resources. 90 million litres of cooking oil are used in the UK every year. Getting rid of it is a huge environmental problem. 
but thanks to trials carried out by supermarket chain, fried food could soon be fueling more than the truckers as waste fat is turned into biodiesel, an alternative source of energy. There's very, very little difference between the energy content of a litre of petrol or diesel and a litre of vegetable oil or biodiesel. It is virtually the same. Biodiesel works in any diesel engine, but it's very different from fossil fuel. It's quite pleasant smelling. Um, it's sort of a sweet smell. Typically it's 90% cleaner burning in an internal combustion engine than regular diesel fuel. This is completely clean, 10 times less toxic than table salt, just to prove the point. 60 mils. Lovely. <laughs> it tastes like cream, very pleasant. Oh, dear devil. Anybody want a drink? Where are you going? Come back! Do you like some? That will be going in my car in a minute, yeah. It's so clean, even a 5% mixture of biodiesel with fossil fuel can cut emissions by 20%. It's 10% oxygen, so when it's added to fossil fuel, the burn and the burning characteristic of that fuel is cleaned up immensely. Biodiesel from waste oil is a simple process and it works on any scale. The only drawback is you don't get quite as many kilometres per litre as with fossil fuel. In Germany and France, both imported and homegrown oilseed rape is used to produce diesel on a large scale. While in many other countries, local oils such as coconut could be used as a substitute. For people living in poverty, access to technologies is usually only possible if innovation, development and exchange are inclusive processes where the community is involved in the design and adaptation. Often the most successful examples are where groups have come together to work out ownership for themselves, which includes taking control of the market as well as the technology used to deliver the product. I think we need to deliberately start looking at ways of putting power in back into people's hands instead of taking it away from them. In Chiapas, Mexico, coffee is the main cash crop. Many families depend on it for survival and having spent years fighting for their land, they were determined to use their collective bargaining power to win a fair price for their coffee. This field is worked collectively. Yes, it's important to grow coffee, but we are also very interested in the market to have a secure market with a better price because coffee growing involves a lot of hard work. Unusually, the coffee is shade grown, preserving the trees under whose branches the beans flourish. It's a high quality organic product with a distinct flavor, processed in a plant owned by the union. By cutting out middlemen, they control both its value and quality. Coffee sold on the open market is usually unprocessed, but the growers sell roasted coffee at a higher price through a partnership that guarantees the sale of a third of their output. Two-thirds is sold for export, and the rest goes to a chain of coffee shops in Mexico City. Café de la Selva was opened by a group of social entrepreneurs in partnership with producers and aims to pay a fair price. 
guaranteed sales to the coffee chain give growers a much-needed regular income. Vinculo y Desarrollo is not a buyer, it's a partner, and together we are making this work. It's not a buy-and-sell relationship, but together we give a service to the public. This relationship is a new concept. While there are many instances of how global commodities traded fairly can help producers beat poverty, it is equally important that local markets aren't neglected. In Sudan, Africa's largest country, over half of its population live in poverty. Yet now, a project which began with simple food processing techniques is unlocking women's potential and transforming their economic and social status in a country which adheres strictly to traditional values and where women are expected to stay in the home. We started by implementing an agro-processing training project. Later we realized that we managed to build community-based organization for women. We call them the Women Development Associations. And uh, we realized that this could be uh, a nuclear for building uh, a real women movement. Zakir Bashir attended a food processing course in 1998. She's a member of a network of women's subgroups represented by the Kassler Women's Development Association, or WDA, which administers a revolving fund to which women can apply for loans each week and also provides regular training. Thanks be to God, our situation has greatly improved. From this work in particular, we have benefited a great deal. We work, we process it, we sell it, and we benefit. Not only have the women increased food security for their families, they're using their strength as a group to get greater access to the market by demanding more licenses for stalls, as the bustling central market is a male preserve, and without a license, they risk police harassment. The income-generating benefits of the program mean that this women's movement is being welcomed even in rural communities. Before, we didn't go to the doctors, and we just used medicine bought from shops or neighbours. If someone had a fever, we'd diagnose it ourselves. But now we can take children to the doctor because we can afford a proper examination. There are now 13 WDAs throughout Sudan, six in the east and seven in the west. Over 9,000 women have been trained, and in the next 12 months, six more women's groups will learn new skills. We have trained lots of women in technical and administrative skills. Now this course has given people confidence in technical skills, but also skills like bookkeeping and chairing meetings. centuries, people have been innovating and exchanging ideas. What sparks an innovation needn't be restricted to development specialists, but what's important is that if the technology is to have a lasting impact, the material should be available locally so they can be easily repaired. Now that's the creativity, the knowledge of how do you mend something if it breaks, uh, which otherwise is a mystery to you. Now I think that, in that sense, this is extremely important. The play pump is a classic example of ingenuity and creative thinking. If we can make it a little bit easier for them, and, uh, and that was the way we triggered this idea, is that when they get to the water point, they don't have to physically work out 
uh, on a hand pump in line, you know, individually. The children have actually pumped the water for the community. Another major advantage of the play pump is that the water can be safely stored in an overhead tank hidden behind these advertising boards. All that's needed to operate the pump is the energy of children at play. Children are allowed to take their own choices, but funny enough, there hasn't been any time that you wouldn't find children wanting to play with that because they're not aware that they're doing something for us. They're just playing. So how do they work? They go round and round, it goes up and down. That's, and that's how it works? <laughs> that's how it works. Okay. It's as simple as that. It works on basic windmill equipment. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We wanted to just put equipment in the ground that we could easily access in cooperative hardware stores throughout Africa. But it's got to be made to a certain standard. You know, you've got children playing here. We've tried this, we've proved it and tested it. With most communities too poor to install the pump, Trevor Field has an answer to this too. He sees the tower as an ideal advertising hoarding. They pay us an a monthly advertising rental. We put this equipment in for nothing. So, you know, it's free, basically. All you've got to do is plan around a bit. While the play pump is one example of creativity, there are many other ideas which use waste or raw materials to make products and create sustainable livelihoods. Capalge, the Babassu Breakers Cooperative in Brazil, showed just what can be done by exploiting one small nut. I used just to break the seeds, but it didn't earn enough money. And we used to just break the seeds because we didn't know any other ways to use the nut. Then when we started to use the inner skin, we started to make more money, especially in the summer. We use the inner skin to make flour for cakes and porridge. It's very nutritious. And the charcoal that is from the outer skin, we use it here in our kitchen and also in power stations because it is stronger and has greater heating power than other vegetable charcoals we find in this region. And the dried leaves from the palm tree, we use it as roofs for our houses. Pouch has also found a way of using the leaves to make decorative paper for folders, bags and soap boxes. Capalge makes its own soap from Babassu oil. This oil, pressed from the nuts, is the most important byproduct. Capalge's biggest break came when it won a contract to supply a UK company with Babassu oil. The deal gives villages a fair price and a secure income, but at the local store, the nut itself can still be used as cash. Capalge now represents over 500 families. At the end of the year, they all get a share of the profits. We would die without the cooperative. What would we do? We're old and fragile women cocoa breakers. Our mothers used to break the nuts to raise their kids, and I'm breaking the nuts to raise my daughters. Since Small is Beautiful was written, thousands of projects have proved that Small is working.
but ensuring that people have the freedom to choose and control the way they use resources and at a scale that works for them is still not always given top priority. Some things can only be done on a big scale, but not many, not many. Making railway engines might be one of them. But most things could be done on a much smaller scale than they are now. We should develop local sources of energy. That would be a major step forward. It's perfectly possible to think of electric power, which has very, very few big generating stations. At the moment, if it's done on such a scale that the majority of people are excluded, you should ask the question, is it appropriate? And the answer is, it usually isn't. I'll let you into a secret. I went to see Schumacher about a week before he died. And the subject of our conversation was, should we not now be applying the concepts of intermediate technology to the rich countries? And he said decisively, yes. I come back to my question. We need to ask of technology and of any economic activity. Is it good for people? Is it good for the environment? Is it good for the resource base? And these are the three questions that Schumacher basically was asking. And we need to ask these questions about our own societies every bit as much as we need to ask it in, in developing, developing countries.